Well, good day, guys. Good day. Uh, you may not know me yet, but my name's Jasper, and I'm pretty fresh on the scene. Um, but I'm going to be around a whole lot more because I'm your seniors leader with Oz. We're going to be looking out for you. So yeah, woo! Um, it'd be great to get to know you over the next few years. So if you see me in the foyer, be sure to grab me and say hi. Um, well, when I was a kid, this guy came to my youth group and he gave his testimony to us. He was an American gangster. Uh, he had, he had um, he'd been on the streets, he'd had all this experience with guns and drugs and all this crazy stuff, but he'd become a Christian. He was a hero to me. His life sounded so amazing. He'd lived this crazy life where he'd had so much street cred and he'd given it all up to turn to God. His story told me that God could save anyone, even someone like him. A few months later, our youth leader apologised to us all, though, because this guy turned out to be a scam. A journalist had done some work on him and proved that he had never been a gangster. He'd just made a bunch of stuff up and he loved the limelight and the attention and so that's how he got it. His story lost all significance in my life. It was just a bunch of made-up stuff that I thought was junk once I found out it wasn't true. Well, this wannabe gangster had a cool story. He talked the talk, but it turned out everything he said was a lie and his story meant nothing to me. Well, tonight, you're going to hear about this guy, Jesus. He talked the talk and he said some big stuff. But then he also backed it up by what he did. Jesus is really legit. So legit that you could throw your life away to follow him and it would be worth it. Why don't we pray before we look into this and consider who this Jesus is. So pray with me. Father, thanks for our time together um, and for the fun that we can have on a Friday night. But as we come to your word now, soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through it. Amen. So why don't you open your, or you've already got your Bibles open at Matthew 8. Keep them open there and bear with me as I get there. And from what I know, you guys, you were in Matthew last year in Term 1 and you finished with Jesus preaching on the, at the, his Sermon on the Mount um, where you saw Jesus talk the big talk. And you can see that right at the end there, chapter 7 in verse 28, where it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So Jesus taught with so much authority that it put him on another level to the teachers of the law. These guys who had given their lives and their professions to teach the law. The kind of authority Jesus had in teaching was because he made the law. Because Jesus is God, he could teach with the authority of God. And it was noticeable to those that heard it. So my first point is that Jesus talked a big game. And the first thing we're going to see tonight is that Jesus backs it up. So Jesus didn't just teach with the authority of God. He performed signs and wonders with the authority of God. So have a look at chapter 8 with me. In chapter 8, the first story we read is a, um, it's about a guy with leprosy. We won't read it, but um, 
This guy is someone you wouldn't normally touch. He's got leprosy. It's a skin disease that spreads with touch. But Jesus touches him and he's healed. But let's pick up in verse 5 because this is the, um, the story I want to focus on. Read with me. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes and that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And just skip down to verse 13 with me. Then Jesus says to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. So what have we got here? We've got a centurion. And what is a centurion? A centurion is a Roman commander. He had a hundred soldiers under him. And he's got this cool power. He can discipline anyone he likes. And you've also got his paralyzed servant that he cares for when he comes to Jesus to ask for help. So this guy had seen or heard about Jesus' signs and wonders and believes Jesus can heal his servant with his power and authority. This is exactly what Jesus' signs and wonders were meant to do in his ministry. Jesus' signs and wonders revealed him as Lord, because only God has authority like this. The centurion actually says it all. He sees Jesus' signs and wonders and recognizes him as Lord. The first thing he said is Lord. He knows what's going on and he's even able to use his own life as an analogy of Jesus' authority. The centurion is a man of authority. He's got officers and servants underneath him. He can say to them, go and they go, come and they come. And he himself is a man under authority and knows that he's bound to obedience. The centurion also submits to Jesus' authority. Calling him Lord in humility doesn't even consider himself worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. And so acknowledges that Jesus, he doesn't operate on a human spectrum of authority. He's far above any human authority. Now take a step back. Jesus is nobody. He's the son of a carpenter. He has no rank in the Roman world. And remember, the centurion is a Roman officer. He can discipline any citizen he likes, and he definitely outranks Jesus. But he comes to Jesus for help, saying he's not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof in his house. Something's weird here. What's going on? Wouldn't you expect him to pull rank and just command Jesus to do something? But he sees that the kind of authority Jesus has outstrips him in every way. The centurion can see that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus is running the show by the fact that he's able to will something to happen, and it happens. He says and believes that Jesus is able to say the word, and his servant will be healed. That's crazy. Jesus' authority in his teaching that we saw in chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount is backed up by what he does in chapter 8 with his signs and wonders. Just a quick example, imagine I was a cool city kid and I was graffitiing up a wall and this police officer came up to me and said, oh, you're not allowed to do that, you're under arrest. And I said, 
no, I'm, I'm not under arrest, I've started running away, what would that say about the police officer's authority? It's kind of, kind of empty, there's nothing. What would he do to prove that he had that kind of authority to put me under arrest? Well, if I was already running, he would taser me in the backside, put me in cuffs, throw me in his car and take me to the station. His authority is proved by the reality of what happens next. So Jesus says to the centurion that his servant is healed and in that very moment before the centurion even walks home, the servant's healed. Jesus backs up his authority by performing signs and wonders. The lepers cleanse, the paralyzed man walks. Who else but God has that authority? We're seeing here that Jesus is doing something only God can do. And you might be thinking, cool, yeah, so what? But I want to show you that if Jesus is who he says he is, you're going to have to make a choice about what to do with him in your life. So my second point is that you can't do nothing about it. You actually have to make a choice. Imagine if someone did some crazy things like that today. You can imagine it would divide people. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus' time. We see in our passage that there seems to be two groups of people who respond differently to Jesus' claim to be Lord through his authority. So let's look at what Jesus said to the centurion in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the centurion trusted in who Jesus is and the result is that he enters into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' response shows that the centurion had drawn the right conclusion about who Jesus was. The centurion is an example of someone who will come from the east and the west, which we saw in the passage. And that's, the Bible calls that type of person a Gentile, essentially someone who's, who's not a Jew. And you can see in the passage that these Gentiles will come and take their place with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they're just... Old Testament Jewish big dogs who will be in heaven. So that's where they're going if they believe that Jesus is Lord. But do you know how the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus? They listened to his teaching, they witnessed his signs and wonders and they hated him. They were so angry with Jesus calling himself Lord that they decided to crucify him. But these Jews who rejected the signs and wonders and rejected Jesus as Lord, they'll be thrown outside into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so will anyone who rejects Jesus as Lord. There can only be two responses to Jesus' authority, to accept him or reject him. To accept Jesus as Lord seats you in the feast in the kingdom of heaven and to reject him and this is really heavy, and I don't want you to take it lightly, but to reject him means that you're rejected from entering the kingdom of heaven. And not making a choice is as good as rejecting him because you didn't choose to accept him. 
I used to live in the, the Blue Mountains, and I'd travel to the Central Coast all the time, uh, again and again and again. And there was always this tricky intersection. It just started out as one road, but it split into two roads. Another lane appeared, and one would take me to the Central Coast, and one would take me to Canberra. <laughs> I didn't want to go to Canberra. I wanted to go to the Central Coast. And the only I was riding a motorbike all the time. They don't have a GPS on them. If you look down at the dashboard, you just see a fuel tank. And so the only way I could know where I was going was to look at the signs above the road. One said, Canberra, <laughs> stick to the right. One said, Central Coast, go to the left. I always took the left because I always knew that would take me to the Central Coast. I didn't want to end up in Canberra. Not making a choice, well, I had to actually merge into the Central Coast lane. Not making a choice was like sticking to the lane that just took me to Canberra. You've got to make a choice. You've got to change lanes. Jesus' signs and wonders are the signposts to his authority as Lord. You, sitting there now, you can only respond in two ways to Jesus. You can witness him through the scriptures, see all the signposts and reject him as Lord, or accept him as Lord. One will get you to Canberra, one to the Central Coast. There is no way that rejecting Jesus as Lord will ever get you into the kingdom of heaven. And there's no way that accepting him will ever lead you to be thrown out of the kingdom of heaven into darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've got to know there's no sitting on the fence with this. You have to make a choice. If you're still investigating the evidence, that's great. I'm so glad you're here. We've got stacks of people here from Summerfest. That's so good to have you here because it's not a decision that should be based off what you've always believed or just because we've said so and so therefore you should believe. No, you're going to make a decision about who Jesus is by looking at Jesus. Come to life. It kicks off in two Tuesdays' time and have a look at all the evidence that they'll take you, take you through. You might not actually think there's evidence, but there's plenty of evidence. Jesus doesn't want you to just have faith in nothing. He wants you to have faith in him. And we have so much information that the Bible has been accurately recorded, that Jesus is a real figure of history, and that he made claims that we can logically and rationally believe. The evidence is there to be considered. Join us at life. So you've got two options. You've got to reject or accept Jesus. And you may have done that. That's great. And you might still be thinking to it. But you would want to know what that looks like, right? What does it really look like to follow Jesus? So my third point is that Jesus is legit and so therefore he needs legit followers. Jesus doesn't want half-hearted followers. He wants people who are sold out for him. We're going to have a look at three responses, uh, responses to Jesus in this passage and I think they'll help us understand what it really means to follow Jesus. So look down with, with me at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
This guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Sounds like the right response to Jesus. But Jesus' response shows that this guy might not know what he's getting into. Jesus replies, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is essentially saying that following him is not going to be a cruise to Vanuatu. It's not going to be a comfy trip and there are real costs of following him. Have you counted the costs of following Jesus? Do you choose to follow him because it's exciting, because hashtag blessed, because of the emotional high? Or will you follow wherever he goes, even if you'll live a lower life than foxes and birds? Jesus is saying following him won't be easy. I play basketball just down the road in Terrigal. Um, Imagine I was trying to recruit you into our team and I told you we lose every game, the referees hate us, Um, every loss is a humiliating one, we just get pwned Um, and this season we're actually going up a grade into a tougher grade. You want to join? Oh, and you're going to pay hundreds of dollars to join it. Yeah. But imagine Golden State Warriors, a recruiting officer came up to you from their team and he said, we want you on our team, we're committed to training you and you can play your first season next year as a rookie and uh, we'll pay you a couple of million bucks. Be a pretty easy choice, right? <laughs> signing up to follow Jesus can feel like you're signing up to play for a losing team. Where will the Son of Man go that you will follow? It isn't easy. Jesus was rejected and crucified. And following him will mean that the majority of your friends will reject you for what you believe. There will always be tension in your life to give up what you believe about Jesus in order to find rest from the rejection that the world has for you. The world will say, party a little, have some fun, fool around. All you have to do is compromise what you believe about Jesus. We have it pretty easy in our country, though. Imagine being in China, where it's illegal to be a sold-out Christian. The government spends its time, the Chinese government spends its time and money hunting down churches and breaking them up. They'll give you an option either to reject Jesus and be accepted by the Chinese government or hold on to him and be tortured, imprisoned, killed. Chinese Christians, though, are deciding that it's worth following Jesus, even if it means being treated like a criminal by the government. Following Jesus will mean that you won't find rest in this life, and Jesus will certainly lead you down a path of suffering of some kind. Jesus is a suffering servant. That is who you are choosing to follow. Let's look at the second response to Jesus. So look with me at verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So this guy says, Lord, first let me bury my father. And it starts good with Lord. And we think he's got it, but then he says, first let me. It's clear that he wants to follow Jesus, but he has other priorities that he wants to get to first. Jesus takes first priority in your life and placing other things before him 
means that he's not Lord of your life and you've just put Jesus in a queue of other things that you need to get to. Now you're thinking, this is pretty harsh. This guy's dad just died, let him go bury him. But I don't think Jesus here is teaching not to bury the dead. That'd be weird, you just have piles of dead people around. I think he's teaching priorities. He wants first place in your life and for everything else to revolve around him. But when, I, but when you say that there are other things you need to get to first, like burying the dead, whatever, it shows that you've placed Jesus second to that. Jesus replies, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. If you said to Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me party and live the most wild life I can, Jesus' response to you would be, follow me and let the dead party and live the most wild life they can. If you place something first in your life, that's what the Lord of your life is. And your decision to follow Jesus is only half-hearted. Jesus wants you sold out, like that parable of the guy that sells everything he has in order to own the pearl of greatest prize. Is Jesus the most treasured thing in your life that you're prepared to lose everything for? This seems to be a pretty tough pill to swallow. I don't think I can put Jesus first in my life if it means I have to let go of everything else. At first glance, following Jesus doesn't sound that appealing. And on the other hand, throwing it all away and pursuing your own interests and desires does sound really, really appealing. But can I urge you, look beneath the surface. The world will say, forget about this Jesus guy. Save your life and follow your own path. And your own path will be full of pleasure, but the world won't tell you where it will take you. That path will probably be fun, not always, but the destination is weeping, darkness and gnashing of teeth. The path Jesus wants you to follow will be full of pain, but remember where it will take you, the kingdom of heaven. The life with Jesus as Lord will be hard, but it will be the best life you could live. Now let's look at this last response to Jesus, um, and it's in verse 14 and 15. Read with me. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. <clears throat> Not only is this another example of Jesus' power and authority over life and death, evidencing him as Lord, it's a picture of our salvation, which is the biggest miracle Jesus ever performs. And it also shows the only way that we can legitimately respond to Jesus. You're Peter's mum. Peter's mum is sick in bed. And dying, and you are tainted by sin, and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus sees Peter's mum and heals her without a request from her. Jesus comes to us in our weak and helpless state and redeems us from our life of sin. And Peter's mum gets out of bed and serves Jesus. Just as Jesus redeemed you, not to live a life of your own priorities, but to serve him. When you find out that Jesus is Lord and you believe it, the position he takes in your life is first place, even if it means you need to give up everything else. 
Later in Matthew, Jesus teaches that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It seems weird, right? That by saving your life, you'd lose it. What's going on there? By giving up your priorities and ambitions in life, to place Jesus as first will save you from the slavery of sin and death that will destroy you. And by trying to save your life and salvage the best experiences and pleasures and comforts, you'll lose everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven, the eternal party of absolute joy in the presence of God. As we close, think about your life. Do you have things that are more important to you than Jesus? What couldn't you live without? Is your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend the most important thing to you? Is your lifestyle the most important thing to you? And would you give up church on a Sunday morning with the family because there's some good swell at Terrigal Point? Do you choose to keep what you believe about Jesus on the down low at school because you'd prefer to keep the easy relationships you have with your peers? Are you eager to see yourself excel at sport even if it means you can't come to youth or G-teams? Are you serving anyone tonight or is this just about you? Is the party life too much fun to give up if it means following Jesus? Can I encourage you, if you're still looking into these things, if you're still considering whether Jesus is Lord, to count the cost of following him. If Jesus is Lord in your life, the cost is that he comes first. And if you're living a life rejecting that Jesus is Lord because you have better things to pursue like party, sex and money, can I warn you that you're among the dead and your efforts to save your life will ultimately lose it. What are you going to do with all this information? Can I challenge to get yourself? Can I challenge you to get yourself to life and work hard at investigating who Jesus is for yourself? Let me pray as we close. Lord, help us see beyond the world, um, beyond what the world has to offer to save our lives. Thank you for your son who saves us from the slavery of sin that destroys our lives. I pray that among us you would be placed first in our lives and that we, that we make decisions in light of you being Lord that our lives might glorify you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.